Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This is food conversation that fits your life. You've tuned in to the best culinary conversation on the radio, so don't touch your dial. For the next hour, we are satisfying cravings, satiating appetites, and it is my goal to make you hungry and to feed your soul, of course. For the past 20 years, I have had the privilege of sharing my passion on the radio. So if you're craving a creamy Alfredo, I have the best recipe. If you want to make pad thai at home, you'll learn it here. I bring to you the emerging trends, the hottest culinary destinations, the top chefs and pastry aficionados, artisans of the food world, winemakers, growers, and more because it is all about living the best life. And if you're looking for the best chicken recipes to enliven your repertoire and more, I hope you'll visit my all new website at chefjamie.com where I'm always serving up seconds. And I hope you'll become a friend and a fan because my daily dish is on social at Chef Jamie Gwen. Now, coming up this hour, oh, we are dishing. One of the best storytellers I know with a tremendous passion for food has written a beautiful book. She is award-winning and best-selling. She is an author and an illustrator, and it is the history and the myths and the legend behind your favorite food or mine for that matter. The book is entitled Chinese Menu, and it's all the stories behind Chinese American dishes, how dumplings came to be, how wonton soup is supposed to tell the creation of the world. And Grace Lynn is here, and we are going to sit down and dish, and she shares a most beautiful story, so please don't miss it. Also, I always find him so inspiring, but if you are back to school, back to work, or any mix thereof, you won't want to miss David Leet of Leet's Culinaria, of course, the award-winning blogger for the past almost 25 years with one of the top culinary websites on the internet. We're talking about weeknight dinners and everything peanut butter, because my kid loves peanut butter, and a Portuguese food event coming up as well. So stay tuned, David Leet in your radio as well. Now, here's the thing. I like to kick off this show to make you a culinary hero, to give you insight and inspiration, the best tricks I know, to make you the best cook you know. And because we are ushering in fall, and it couldn't come soon enough, I love the fall season. I love the leaves. I love uh, pomegranates and butternut squash, everything. And oh, I love apples. Did you know that there are approximately 7,000 varieties of apples in the world? And even if you tried a different apple every day, it would take you 20 years to sample the entire spectrum. But how much do you actually know about apples? Like certain apples are best for baking. Other varietals are most ideal for applesauce. And there are some that are just perfect for eating out of hand and nothing else. So this tutorial I titled Apple Everything. 
I think that apples are best in the fall. I like early season apples. Some chefs will tell you that the winter season is best, uh, but this is how to choose them, cook them, use them. Now, although many of those apple varieties that I alluded to are available year round through the use of controlled atmosphere storage, as it's called, they are definitely at their premium when they're purchased and eaten in season. Pretty apples are, however, and this applies to so much of the fruit world, pretty apples are not always the tastiest apples. So the brown stripes that you see on an apple, um, also those same stripes that you see on a watermelon and more, the sugar lines, as they call them, are a very virtuous sign of sweet flavor. So if you're going apple picking or you're picking them up at your favorite grocery store, mine is Ralph's, then I will tell you, look for the stripes. Uh, Apples actually ripen 10 times as fast at 70 degrees than they do when chilled. So I believe that refrigeration is very necessary to maintain quality of an apple. So when you buy the apples at the market, they're probably sitting out and albeit the temperature inside the store is cool, but not cool enough. And so I do recommend that you refrigerate upon arrival, as we like to say, or when you get them home. And we all know that apples turn brown when they're cut and exposed to air, right? That's oxidation. Uh, They oxidize. And to prevent this, everyone knows the lemon juice and water trick, but I'll tell you, I have something better. There are few apples that don't retard or oxidize, but they're is one and they're uh, hard to find, but you can find them from Melissa's produce, my produce sponsor here for more than 20 years. Thank you, Melissa's. And, um, they're a sweet tart variety and I love them. They're called ambrosia apples. Uh, and they, they do not retard or oxidize. Now, To keep the brown from happening, may I suggest that you move from lemon juice and you adopt the pineapple juice theory. And that is that the acid in pineapple juice is really high. And rather than water and lemon, I think that pineapple juice is the best choice to keep an apple from browning, especially if you're packing a lunchbox or building a board like cheese and fruit and meats and nuts and more. But pineapple juice is a great uh, soak or a dip even to uh, keep those apples pure white and beautiful. Now, three medium-sized apples equal about a pound, if you didn't know. And during the height of pie making season, which will come, you'll find plenty of apples tucked into buttery crusts, right? Um, There's another easy technique though, that I think amps up the flavor of the fruit. And there's nothing more than I, that I love from my childhood than a baked apple, um, in some sort of like lovely liquid like, um, cherry soda. Yes. Or, uh, brown sugar steeped in apple juice to compound that apple flavor. Make for a beautiful presentation. I like to stuff the apples. Um, I do them in the air fryer now instead of the oven. And there's just something beautifully fall about a baked apple. 
poaching fruit, I think, is just a wonderful way to keep all the flavor intact, right? To sort of compound it. And then you can use all those earthy spices like nutmegs and cloves and so good. All you do is take... Uh, firm peeled apples and you plop them in a pot, right? With some sort of liquid and aromatics and you cover it and you simmer it away until the fruit is tender, like a paring knife goes in easily, but not soggy. It takes about a half an hour and then you remove them and, you know, serve them with ice cream and sea salt caramel and, oh, it's like apple pie in a bowl with no crust. So it's guilt-free, right? Sure. Okay, here are my favorite apples of the season. Watch for them, please. We all love a Honeycrisp, available year-round now, streaks of red and green on the outside, but that crisp flesh and that beautiful mellow flavor, good for eating raw out of hand and for a variety of cooking methods. Now, I love a Jonah Gold. That is a cross between a Jonathan Apple and a Golden Delicious, and it is great for cooking. When it comes to a Rome beauty, that's a red apple, firm flesh, holds its shape well, think baked apples, really beautiful um, for roasting or baking or air frying for a whole apple, adding to your stuffing at the holidays and more. And then this is a harder to find apple, uh, but I hope that you'll search it out. It's called a wine sap, W-I-N-E-S-A-P. It is a dark red apple, crisp flesh, and a kind of winey flavor. It has characteristics that give it a very loyal following among apple aficionados. Uh, it is not a good keeper apple. It loses its crisp, crispness quickly. But if you can find wine saps, um, grab some extra just for me, please. And so now you know the best apple to pack in your lunch, the best one to poach, and the best, the best one for pie. Um, and don't forget to use them in every capacity you can because it's apple season. Rejoice. It is my favorite time of year. All right. We are about to dish on the Chinese menu. I am thrilled and delighted that New York Times bestselling author Grace Lin is here. From fried dumplings to fortune cookies, we are examining the rich history and a few tales. There's more delicious conversation in your radio and fabulous food right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. If you're in the mood for juicy conversation, well, this is it. Have you ever been curious about the names of the dishes that you order at your favorite Chinese restaurant? I know, me too. And there is this absolutely 
fabulous and fascinating new read from award-winning and best-selling author Grace Lynn that will give you background on the feast, insight on the history, the legends, and the myths behind your favorite American Chinese dishes. She is a Newbery and Caldecott honoree, a New York Times best-selling author, and extraordinarily well-known, popular, and deservedly so for her children's books. But this is a groundbreaking, beautifully illustrated, full-color book that explores the whimsy, the myths, the stories behind all of the fabulous Chinese food that we love. The book is entitled Chinese Menu, the History, Myths, and Legends Behind Your Favorite Foods. And I am truly delighted that Grace is here. Welcome to the show, Grace, and thank you for gracing us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> and congratulations. I really have loved reading your book, and I'll tell you, um, the praise that it's getting is um, very well deserved. I think there's something so fascinating, and I did feel a little bit of shame. Like, I thought that all the Chinese food I ate growing up was all authentic Chinese, right? Um, Not at all like the table that you grew up at, sitting down (laughs) where your mother served multiple courses. And so we want to know that backstory and how this book came to be, first and foremost. authentic American Chinese food, which is beautiful and wonderful in its own self, which is actually how this book came about. Because uh, back in 2004, I I created a picture book, a book for like first and kindergarten, first graders and kindergartners um, called Fortune Cookie Fortune. And when I was doing that book, I researched the history of the fortune cookie. And that is when I found out that fortune cookies are a completely Asian-American invention. If you go to China and you ask for a fortune cookie, they most likely will not know what you are talking about. If they do, they'll say, oh, you mean that American cookie? Uh, So uh, I found this out, and I remember telling a good many of my friends, and when they heard this, uh, every single one of them said to me, oh, so... Fortune cookies aren't even really Chinese. And I always kind of said this in kind of a tone of disdain, yes. uh, kind of maybe even disgust. <laughs> and that always made me feel very uncomfortable because I was born here in the United States. Um, I had a very um, tenuous uh, relationship with my identity. For a long time, I didn't want to be Asian. Uh, mm. It was only when I uh, grew older into adulthood that I started embracing my heritage. So I could actually hear a lot of people say that about me. They could say, oh, she's not really Chinese. Chinese. And that made me feel really bad. And of I thought, like, no, nothing wrong with being Asian American. Asian Americans deserve respect for being uh, cross-cultural, and so does the fortune cookie. Yes. <laughs> so that's why I did this book, with the hope that we give this American Chinese food the respect it deserves, just like I hope. We respect our our, uh, fellow Americans with Asian roots as well. Let's start at the beginning. You were delighted, and I think with an appreciation from what I read more so today than ever, your mother put out soup and rice and three entrees, and every night was a full meal. Yes. Oh. Uh, That was, our traditional dinner was like a 
a whole table full of food. <laughs> and, and now looking back, I mean, I know you and I don't do that in our households today, no. right? <laughs> right. There, there is tremendous respect for it. Um, but when we dine out for Chinese food, you're giving us the backstory. So um, start with, if you don't mind, selfishly, um, I've rabbit-eared every one of my favorite American Chinese dishes in Chinese menu. Um, we... We always start with egg rolls, like you do today. So egg rolls, um, egg rolls are an offshoot of spring rolls. It's definitely uh, egg rolls are, are an Asian American food, but they were definitely inspired by the spring roll. The thing that makes them a little bit different from the spring roll is like they're they've got a thicker skin. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're kind of a, a fatter <laughs> a fatter roll, but they were definitely definitely inspired by the spring roll. Now the spring roll is called the spring roll because traditionally in China they ate it at during the spring, during their spring festivals. But the name actually has nothing to do with the origin story. Uh, The origin story has to do with a Ming Dynasty minister who used to get his work done two times faster than all of his colleagues. He got it done so quickly that all of his colleagues grew jealous and suspicious of him, and they thought he was cheating somehow. So they went to the emperor and said, there's no way this minister can get his work done so fast. He must have somebody doing his work for him. Now, the emperor was also very curious how this minister was getting his work done so quickly, so he called the minister to him and asked. And the minister then told his big secret, which was he had a special talent. He could write with two hands. And because he could write with two hands, he could get his work done twice as fast as everybody else. Now, of course, nobody believed him. So the emperor gave him like nine boxes of records and said, okay, copy these nine boxes of records in nine days. If you can truly write with two hands, you should be able to get it done. So this minister brought it home, and he realized, looking at all the records, that even for him to, even with writing with two hands, he would have to work night and day and nonstop to finish, to, in order to finish all the records. And so he started working and working and working, not stopping it at all. Now, this minister had a wife who was very worried about him, and she's like, he must eat! And he's like, I can't stop. I must copy these records. So she tried to feed him, and she tried to feed him soup and noodles. And he's like, no, 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 too messy. And so (laughs) she, so worried about him, invented a new food, a rolled food that she could hold and he could bite. So she could still write with his two hands. She held it, and he could bite it and eat it without using his hands. And that rolled food was the spring roll, which eventually turned into our egg roll. And genius. First of all, (laughs) thanks to her, we have the delight of spring rolls and egg rolls and more today. And you are the most beautiful storyteller. I will tell you, I have read your novels, um, the... Uh, Where the Mountain Meets the Moon, uh, Ling and Ting, all of them, uh, New York Times bestsellers, um, Newbery honors. I am very, very taken um, that you are a TEDx talk uh, genius and very much beloved for such. And it is very impressive to me that you were recognized by President Obama's office as a champion of change for Asian American and Pacific Islander art and storytelling, and I would like it duly noted. It's an amazing immersion into Chinese culture. We are dishing about Chinese menu. The new release from award-winning and best-selling author Grace Lin and everything you love about American Chinese food. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Grace in your radio, back after this. 
Chinese menu, the history, myths, and legends behind your favorite foods. It really is an absolutely groundbreaking, beautifully written book that explores the myths and the stories behind American Chinese food and culture. And Grace Lin is here. Now, by the way, just from a culinary perspective, you know, they're kind of rising in popularity again. We're seeing a lot of videos on social media of the scallion pancake in its traditional form and kind of reinvented. And I think there's a newfound appreciation for them. Yeah. Well, I, I, I guess in my life, I've never lost appreciation. For no, because it wasn't something your mother made all the time, but when she did, it was a big deal, right? Yes. Yes. And we loved it. And scallion pancakes, you know, we were just talking about my mother's food at home and the food that we would eat at the Chinese restaurant. It was actually quite different. And the food that I had at the Chinese restaurant, I have to admit, I kind of liked more. <laughs> it was not the same as my mother's. But a couple dishes were the same. And one of the dishes that were the same was the scallion pancakes. Yeah. So that it's never fallen out of favor for me. <laughs> now, the, the backstory of the scallion pancake is really interesting. Um, they're, they're, they're really connected to this Buddhist monk who uh, would bring the ingredients around with him wherever he went because they're actually very, very simple ingredients to make the scallion pancake. Mm-hmm. And, and it became popular that way throughout China. But the myth that um, I remember the most about the scallion pancake and the myth that I truly believed was real, and since writing this book I have heartbrokenly found is not real at all, <laughs> is the myth of how uh, the scallion pancake um, inspired pizza. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the, uh, the story, which I want to say for all our Italian friends out there, it, this is not a true story. <laughs> and, uh, and I say that specifically in the book. It's not a true story, but it is a myth that seems to live on that uh, many people enjoy. Yes. But this, the myth goes that Marco Polo went to China and he enjoyed the scallion pancakes in China so much that when he returned to Italy, he longed to eat the scallion pancakes. Now, unfortunately, he had never made a scallion pancake. He had only eaten them. So he had no idea how the scallion pancake was made. So he employed all these chefs trying to get them to remake the scallion pancake the way he remembered. And, of course, the chefs, who having never had scallion pancake, just kept doing all these experiments. Uh, they were never able to replicate the scallion pancake but they were able to invent the pizza, which is what we have today. (laughs) That, like I said, is an untrue but much-loved story. (laughs) Yes, and very endearing, really. My mom was fried rice all the way, and then Mm -hmm. she always ordered a noodle dish because I always loved the noodles. And Mm -hmm. there's something really extraordinary to me about the symbolism of Chinese noodles. And I know this from Chinese friends and sitting at the table for Chinese New Year, where, you know, you're often reminded, uh, don't cut the noodles. You're welcome to slurp Mm -hmm. them all, but they have to be taken in one full long bite, right? (laughs) For longevity and so on. So this was so wonderful to me to to learn more. Um, and I, I would love for you to, um, to dig deeper in noodles for us. Sure. So noodles, uh, they, we have them at Lunar New Year. And we also have them on, on birthdays uh, because they're longevity noodles. And the longer the noodle, the longer your life is going to be, they say. You know, that's the, that's the kind of um, myth. Um, so uh, this is actually, the, I don't think I put this in the book, but the reason why they call noodles, uh, they say long life noodles, is because there was this 
man who was like over 100 years old, and he had a really long face and really long whiskers that were like noodles, and somehow that correlated to these long-life noodles. So it's a kind of a, a weird a weird juxtaposition, but somehow this man that lived like 150 years old and, and had a long face and long, long beard ter- was correlated to eating long-life noodles. <laughs> so that's part of the... Um, part of the, the mythos of uh, longevity noodles. But what's really fascinating about noodles is that uh, for every kind of noodle there is in, um, like, Italian culture, there is probably an equivalent in Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, there's the angel angel hair pasta, right? Yes. And it's like a really, really thin pasta. Capolini. Well, there's a, a, there's a kind of a noodle, um, there's a kind of noodle in... Um, Chinese culture that is also really, really thin. They call it gold thread needles, you know, so they can actually go through the eye of a needle. And then um, uh, Italian, uh, uh, I'm going to butcher how to say this Italian word, or Orchietti, which is like little ears, which I love, by the way, Grace, because they hold the sauce, like pesto or vodka sauce. They're wonderful because they have a little cup built in and you get all the deliciousness of the sauce and the, the pasta itself. Well, there is actually a Chinese equivalent and they call it the cat ear noodle. Oh, I didn't know <laughs> so, that. Yeah. So every, so every kind of noodle that there is in Italian culture, there's, there's very, there's usually a, a similar noodle in Chinese culture, which I think is so interesting. Yes. You know, and they have so many stories about these noodles. You know, like um, there's a special uh, noodle that is called like sister-in-law noodle because they're made by um, they're they're made. It, it, it's a long story where the sister-in-law made these noodles for uh, a scholar <laughs> to pass his exam. Uh, but the sad thing about these noodles is if you're so people make these noodles for scholars before their their test. Yes. And it's called sister-in-law noodles. But if they fail the test, they are renamed shamed son noodles. <laughs> oh, so they've changed names. Oh, they're they'll turn on you is what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> How very funny. I love all of the the magic and the hungry monks and the squabbling dragons and the folklore in your research and and the fact that it really brings to life these dishes it adds this whimsy to our love in america of chinese food all while you're honoring your culture and i i just it's just wonderful um leave us with this with just a, a little bit of time left i'm going to butcher the name um general tso's chicken how was that <laughs> very good close enough good. i everyone no, has a different general, name for it right yes some people call it general chow some people call it yes. general Cho. so it's any way you say it, it's fine these days <laughs> but everybody knows it there really was a general correct yes yes there really was a general general Cho, uh who was a great hero in the hunan province uh, but General Cho never ate this chicken. He never ate chicken, uh, he, right? <laughs> he never ate this chicken, and it's actually not even known if he liked chicken now that I think about it. Right. Uh, so he didn't make it. He's never tasted General Cho's chicken. What happened was that a chef in China, this is actually a fairly recent um, a fairly recent invention compared to, like, say, Kung Pao chicken or, or the other uh, dishes in the book. 
Um, so this was actually invented by a chef in Taiwan hmm. who was making it for a grand um, state banquet dinner, which, uh, which the United States was coming to. And he created this new chicken dish, and he wanted to give this chicken dish uh, a name with a lot of gravitas, you know, and a lot of importance and respect. And so he thought about his hometown of Hunan, and uh, he thought about his local hero there, General Cho, and he's like, okay, I will call it General Cho's Chicken in honor of my hometown hero. And so that's why it became General Cho's Chicken. I love it. I, 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 I really am very enamored with the way you tell a story, with your beautiful prose, with the fact that you have... Um, 30 books under your belt, so many of which have been dedicated to bettering our kids, um, being children's books. And kudos to you because Chinese Menu is truly fabulous. You will find the book <laughs> online and in stores at Barnes & Noble, so please support your local store. And of course, you can follow Grace's um, continued and well-deserved successful uh, writing career uh, by going on social on Instagram. She is at P-A-C-Y-L-A-N, right? Yes, Pacey Lin. Pacey Lin, thank you. She is Grace Lin. The book is Chinese Menu, and it is groundbreaking. It is a full-color book that just explores the beauty of American Chinese food, all while she honors her culture and what better way to learn and to grow um, than with a book like this? It really is groundbreaking, Grace. Congratulations to you. Thank you for sharing your passion on this show. You have an open invitation and welcome anytime. You would love to talk American Chinese food again. I'd love to have you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. What a pleasure. On this show, we do dig deeper. And if you know me, you know I love a backstory. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with more fabulous food right after this. Don't go away. Okay, now I'm starving. I need barbecue pork fried rice, Grace. I do. I just (laughs) need it. I need it. We'll be right back. life create and savor yours welcome back chef jamie gwen in your radio so fall is here well almost and we're back to school back to really working again and the days feel busy for sure so what's for dinner David Leet to the rescue. He is an expert on so many things, and his blog is much adored for its deliciousness since 1999. I am extraordinarily proud to call him my friend and have him as a culinary contributor to this show, and he's back with delicious inspiration. David Leet is here to dish. We're back to school, and it's busy, by the way. I will tell you, David, it is busy. I hear you. Um, Can we talk mac and cheese, please? Because there's something about fall comfort food, back to school, luscious leftovers. Do you know that um, of all the 
glorious mac and cheese recipes on your website. Do you know mm-hmm. I make your brie mac and cheese? Do you? Oh my gosh, it's like silky it? lusciousness. Like <laughs> it's, it's so it's good. You want to like bathe in it. I do want to so. bathe in it, exactly. And I could probably get my kiddo to eat it, but I love that yeah. you have a twist on the traditional. You have some really great mac and cheese for family, mm-hmm. for family yeah. dinners, let's call it. Yeah, well, this one I think is great for back to school kids, trying to get kids to eat their vegetables, which of course, when I was growing up, and even as an adult, I'm not really big on eating my vegetables. (laughs) And so this is macaroni and cheese, luscious, creamy, cheesy, but with zucchini in it. Yeah, love it. And by the way, my kid will eat zucchini if you call it cucumber. Just play along. Okay, so we're going to call this one (laughs) mac and cheese with cucumber. Yes. (laughs) All right. And then so this has one pound and six ounces of zucchini. Now, that is a lot of zucchini, and it has all the other great stuff with the, the milk and the cheeses, and you've got cheddar, fontina, and gouda. I mean, yeah, it's good. What more do you want? Number two, wonderfully melty cheeses and that nice sharp cheddar to kind of round, up, round out the flavors, and some smoked paprika, mm. some cayenne pepper, a little bit of nutmeg. It's just, it's everything you want it to be. Yes. Yet, it's kind of like stealthy, healthy. It is stealthy, healthy, for sure. And it uses elbow pasta, which we know the kiddos love. My kiddo does. And I can get him to eat all those cheeses. And you sort of sneak the zucchini in. And for for everyone's garden that was so bountiful with with zucchini, this is a great way to use it up. Make a double batch. I freeze it in portions so Mm -hmm. that when, let's say I'm having salmon for dinner and I know my kiddo won't eat that, I'll pull out... Uh, a single portion of the mac and cheese with zucchini for my son, and mm-hmm. we can still sit down for dinner together, but I know that he'll eat. And what I like about this, it has a brown butter breadcrumb topping. Yes. Oh, so not just regular, that. it's brown butter. So this is really hitting on you know the greatest hits of all mac and cheeses, <laughs> right. all put together, but it also has the stealthy, healthy zucchini in there. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, by the way, brown butter makes everything better. You and I have dished, yeah, on, dished on that before. Um, do you make yeah. sloppy joes in your house for the one? Yes. You yes, do? He loves sloppy jo- yes, he loves sloppy joes. I love sloppy joes. It's just, it's, a, it's, it's such a childhood memory for me. Like we used to get, my mom used to buy Manwich. Remember Manwich? Oh, in a can, of course. In a can. And so that's what I used to have. But, yeah, you can make – we have a great recipe for Sloppy Joe's, and it's got a lot more veggies than normal, yeah, which, which is, is nice. nice. And it's got you know, on toasted hamburger buns. And, I mean, it's something that the kiddos will absolutely love. Yeah, and it, you can make it ahead of time, which is great, and then get it ready. You can freeze it very easily. Fabulous. And whenever you want it, just toast off some buns, butter them, and put the Sloppy Joe – mixture inside and you're all set. Yeah, super simple. And I love that you offer the alternative. You can make it with ground beef. You could do ground chicken. My kiddo loves ground turkey. Anything yeah. like saucy like that he loves. And you could sneak yeah. in even more veg. Um, yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, I think the secret, are you big on tomato paste? I think we should have like a dedicated conversation to tomato paste at some point because I think it is underused and underrated. Like if you want to add richness, umami, and, and umami. depth of flavor, right? You yep. use tomato paste. I do. And, and the thing is, I will only use a double concentrate tomato paste now. Okay. That's so in a, in a tube or a, how do you get it? I get it in a tube. Me too. And yes. I use that and it's, it's just 
so much more flavorful than mm-hmm. regular. Yes. And it just adds so much more flavor. And like you say, it's got that great tomato flavor. It's got that umami flavor and a slight, not a meaty flavor, but there's just a roundness to it that you can add to so many different things. I love yes. the podcast, by the way. It's episode nine. If you yes. want to... Um, brush up or maybe elevate your mm-hmm. back to school lunches, dinners, sweets, and more. Uh, it is David Leet and Amy Traverso's podcast called Talking With My Mouth Full, and it's right. on every streaming platform, right? Episode nine is all yes. about back Episode to school. It's called School Lunches. School Lunches. Perfect. And you can, by the way, find David's podcast from LC Cook's dot com or you can go to Leet's Culinaria. Of course you should follow at David Leet uh, because you'll find delicious inspiration daily. LCcooks.com. All right. You'll be back next month, right? And we'll talk of course. Halloween and holiday and so much more. And pumpkins and all wonderful stuff. I'll be there. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of decadent conversation. At least I hope you thought so. I hope you learned something. I hope I inspired you to taste something new or that you have a new delicious dish on the horizon sometime this week. I hope that you will tune in every week because the culinary landscape is ever evolving and you wouldn't want to miss a bite now, would you? Let me leave you with my last bite for that matter, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation for this week. As we enter into fall and apple season, which which I dished about at the beginning of the show, um, I happen to love an apple and manchego cheese salad. Manchego is, of course, the Spanish semi-hard cheese. It's very tangy, but it's not overpowering, and I think it is a perfect partner to apples. And all I do is combine matchstick cut apples tossed with a little bit of pineapple juice, once again, in place of lemon juice, same acid, better flavor. And then I add in the matchstick cuts of the manchego cheese, and I toss it with a little bit of mild olive oil, salt, and pepper. It is beautiful alongside any protein. Uh, It could be the topper for arugula or watercress for a super simple fall salad. It's just so good. It's an apple and manchego salad, and I will post it on social media at Chef Jamie Gwen, where I hope you'll find uh, scrumptious inspiration all week until I meet you here again next weekend in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Bye.